This is Growing Your Successful Business, the podcast for you, the entrepreneur, to learn valuable lessons from the experiences of fellow business owners sharing the secrets of their success and the critical lessons they have learned along the way, as well as experts giving their advice on how to navigate the pitfalls in their industry to help you better run your business. Here's your host, Brian Harding. Hey now, and good day. Thanks for tuning in to Growing Your Successful Business, the podcast all about small business stuff. Uh, this week we got Paul Ladane with us. Paul Ladane has got a couple different businesses we're going to talk about. Uh, first, let me introduce Paul. Um, Paul grew up in a family of small business entrepreneurs. He has a passion for business and life, and he is happiest when he's getting to build something like anything, like a car, relationship, team, business. Uh, he likes building stuff, and when he gets to help people by having a positive impact in their lives. Those that know him well know that his kids and wife are the reason he pushes himself every day. When he's not focused on business, he loves time uh, time he has with his family and his happy places in the mountains in the wintertime. He loves skiing, snowboarding, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he always recommends to people um, that finding a place or thing of peace is what will push us through the moments of challenge. And he has two businesses we're going to talk about today. Uh, one is Complete Merchant Services, which is a full-service electronic payments uh, slash credit card processing company. Uh, they offer point-of-sale systems, e-commerce, ATM machines, and mobile processing. And Kraft Foods is an online retailer of locally sourced, high-quality foods from a small business from small businesses looking for a platform to feature their products for sale. And you've had a, a whole bunch of other things. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Uh, so you've had a nightclub. You've had a construction company. You've had a machine shop. So you got a, you got a pretty well-rounded uh, um, uh, history in business, right? Been at it for a little bit now, yeah. And you and you uh, you mentioned to me before that your parents um, your parents were entrepreneurs, and it's kind of been instilled in you since uh, since you were a little kid, right? That is true. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So tell me about that. What what was what was uh, what was your parents' gig? Yeah. So my my father was uh, he was an engineer, and uh, he worked in the wood industry. So when you think of uh, when you think of like plastic items today, so like twenty years ago when you used to get a couch delivered or a big piece of equipment or refrigeration would be wrapped in plastic that was non. Uh, non-recyclable. Right. And now today, um, what do you do with that plastic back then? You threw it in landfill. He designed and engineered and built a machine where you take that plastic and you would produce it and turn it into glue for the wood industry. Um, another piece of equipment that he designed and engineered as well is what they'd call a tunnel ram, where if you're looking, if you go to the hardware store and you see a four by eight sheet of uh, particle board, right, that you're going to buy. Right. Well, this particular tunnel ram, you would take that chipped wood, you would inject the glue from the plastic, and then it would press and make those four by eight sheets of particle board. And that's the part that he designed and built. And then when you go into like large construction, where you see like big glue lamb beams that are, you know, holding up big buildings. Yeah. And you, you look and you see where the beams have been finger jointed together, right? And right. they've been cut and grooved and then glued. And so he designed and built the finger joint machine where you would take and, and make those big beams. So what, what did uh, growing up in a household with a guy who was designing and selling all this stuff and, and doing pretty well in life, uh, what did that do for you? How did that impact you as a kid? You know, as a, as a child, uh, the work ethic is what really got instilled. Um, and my parents were not ones that gave us stuff. We were taught how to go earn and work for stuff. Um, and, and that's probably one of those strong attributes that I got from it. And, yeah. and, it was, and it's made an impact on my life today. Sure, sure, sure. So um, you've talked to, uh, before, I've, you know, I've talked uh, off the air several times, but um, one of the things that you've mentioned a couple times to me is your philosophy that the answer is always yes. Why don't you talk to us about that? What's that mean for you? 
Yeah, that's a great one, Brian. Um, so I used to also work in the film production world. I used to help produce uh, TV commercials here locally. Um, and, and by far, probably one of my favorite jobs ever. And the producer that I worked for, um, he would physically, he just took me to every meeting with every agency, every director. And my job was to sit up, sit there and shut up and not say a word. Right. And then if someone asked for something, the answer was always yes. Even <laughs> if you had zero idea, he'd be like, hey, can you go over and take some photos of this, upload them and do that? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Got no idea what I'm doing. And you just go do it, right? Right. You learn, yeah. You just learn. And in and, and that interest that industry in the film production industry is really interesting because it's a it's a ton of creative, right? And you're always creating something that doesn't exist. And so it's all about going out and just making it happen, even if you have no clue. And so I just kind of took that forward in life and it's been a great motto. Right. So um, that leads to one of your other talking points that I've heard you you mentioned before. If you're successful, I am successful. Um, how, how'd you, how'd you come up with that, that, uh, saying? Oh uh, yeah, that was another good one. So, um, my brother and I used to have an automotive, um, rebuild shop here in Tacoma, Washington. And when you're rebuilding a client's motor, you know, and rebuilding the motor, so it runs, there's, there's a lot of things that can really go wrong that are out of our control. Um, and so when you're rebuilding a motor, one is you have the machine work, we can control our machine work and that's the thing we get to control. Right. right. But then you get to buy parts. And so most of the parts aren't made in America today. So whether you buy cheap, mid-grade, or quality parts, right, you still have to buy parts, and they can fail, and some come broken in the box. Right. Then you have the customer. So we would build what was called the long block, or the core of your motor, which means the block, the crank, the pistons, rods, the rings, the heads. But then the motor goes out the door, and the customer's got to install it. And I have no idea what the customer's knowledge or background about installing motors how do you start up a motor? How do you break in the cam so you don't flatten it? How do you seat the ring so the oil doesn't go by? There's a lot of things. Or make sure you don't overheat the motor and wreck right. it. Yep. So the philosophy I adopted was is that if I make my customer successful, if I do everything that I possibly can so that they go out the door the first time and the motor goes in and starts up and runs, that was the only way that we were profitable. And, right. and profitable wasn't just in money. You know, as that business went, that business was a very much an old school word of mouth type of business. And so, you know, if, if the motor doesn't work the first time, then that failed. Who takes the motor? Right. Out? So uh, you, you have a great point there. So one of the things that um, is pretty common nowadays in, in the business world is assigning blame right out of the gate whenever something goes wrong. And your example is a good one where you have a, a long block that you've rebuilt for a motor and uh, you go back and, or they go back, they, they pick it up from you, you re rebuilt the thing, they go install it and they go fire it up and then they drive away. And then, you know, four weeks later they come to you and say, hey, this thing isn't working anymore. And you figure out, well, what most companies do is they start diagnosing who's at fault, <laughs> right? And so, well, did you do this? And did you, did you, how do we know you didn't overheat it? How do we know you installed it properly and all this kind of stuff? <coughs> Excuse me. And you're, your point is, if they're failing with that, um, why waste the time with that exercise? Just teach them how to do it the right way so you don't have to have that conversation, right? Right. And so, and, and, and that's a great point you bring up. So one of the things we do is when, when the customer came to pick up their product, so I had, a, I had a nice little one sheet that we would go through, and basically every item on the sheet was a story. I had a story of every mistake that a customer had made. And so I would go through and we would spend an hour and I would walk them through the process and tell the funny story of the mistake the guy made. And I said, look, 
if you call me before you turn the key, I can help you. Right. Right. Which is the point. And I'm like, look, call me. I would rather have you call and spend time with you right beforehand to make sure you're successful than to have you call me afterwards and go, okay, now what do we do? Right. Right. And so a lot of what we did was all about making sure that the customer felt like they could come to us and we could just help them. Because again, if they were successful, the byproduct was our own success. Right. So, so you're looking past the sale, you're looking past the pickup and delivery and all that kind of stuff. You're invest, you invested some time into helping them be successful after the fact so that you didn't get those calls afterwards where something had gone wrong. And now you're into a, a, an argument over whose fault it is and who's going to call the first attorney and all that kind of stuff, or who's going to give back how much money. And you should have told me and I, sh- and you're saying, no, you should have known. That's a huge time suck and an expense that why go through that? Why not just help them be successful up front, right? That's correct. Absolutely. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so um, what's, what's the, all I got to do, all you got to do thing. What's that all about? <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, us as small business people, right? We, we have ideas, but at the end of the day, taking an idea and then converting it into an action is a lot of times that's where we get paralyzed or we get stopped or we're not sure where even to start. Right. And so I think a lot of times, you know, I, sometimes it's just having a conversation and boiling it down to the smallest thing. When you're, when you've got an idea or a concept, if you can just get to the first step, all you got to do is this one first step. (coughs) You don't have to solve the whole problem. All you got to do is get started. Right. And that's all you got to do. Right. And, And a lot of times for people, they, a lot of times when I talk to people that are owners, I'll go, oh, I got to do this and then I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And I'm like, actually, if you just start here and do this one small thing, then other answers will come and it'll give you more of a clear direction where to go next. Right. And you just one small step at a time. Yeah. And getting that first step is generally most of us are paralyzed. And, and uh, when we are afraid or unable to take that first step, then we spend a whole bunch of time spinning our wheels, planning and trying to figure out, well, maybe that's not the right first step. And now we got to figure out a new first step and we're, we find all kinds of creative ways to avoid taking a step. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the worst thing you can do. It's the worst thing you can do from a leadership standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, from a production standpoint. Um, even if what you do wrong the first time, or even what you do the first time is wrong, just do something, right? <laughs> well, failure, right? Like, I mean, when you, look, when you look inside big companies today, right? Like, when you look at, like, Silicon Valley, all they're expected to do is fail. Right. right. That, that's the first expectation is failure because you did something. Right. You know, it's like Thomas Edison. How many times, how, how many light bulbs did he try to make before he made a light bulb? Like 2000, right. right? Right, right. Right. But if he would have gave up on number 10, we wouldn't have the light bulb today, right? Sure. Or it may have took another 100 years. Right. So um, to me, it's the same thing. Yeah. What, what do you think drives that, that fear of failure for folks? Most of the time, what I find from people is they're just unsure where to start. Right. And, and when they share their idea with people, people tell them, ah, oh, you can't do that. And I, a lot of times, cause that's where we go. We go to get feedback right. from people, right? Like I've got this great idea, Brian, I want to go out and I want to do this. And I tell you, and you're like, yeah, you can't do that. You can't do it. Cause of this, this, and this. Yeah. Right. And that's the feedback they got, even though it may not have been the right person to talk to, to get the feedback. Sure. And that's the first part where they get deli- um, debilitated. Right. 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 Uh, it's interesting. We, we often get, we run those ideas by people who are the least qualified to answer them. <laughs> it's not like we're, <laughs> it's not like we're calling Bill Gates and asking his opinion on something. Oh, we, we should try it. We're, we're asking our, our high school friend or our, our buddy at work or something like that. Um, you know, by and large, the, the most poorly qualified people to answer such a question of how you should try something new or how you should get started or, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
You know, you, uh, bring up, you bring up a really good point, if I can just interject yeah. on that, because you're right. We do have the wrong, usually the wrong group of people, because unless your group of friends are business owners, who are you talking to? Right. Right? Who are those friends? And so, you know, just not even know to go, to go out and research or, or find the right people to run your idea by, or even where to start with that is another part, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I started hearing this uh, saying, and I, I'm kind of slow on picking up on you know cliche terms floating around. But I started hearing this, uh, I don't know, probably four or five years ago, that uh, you are the average of the five people you spend most of your time with. And uh, <laughs> I first, you know, like most cliche things, I when I first heard, it, I was like, yeah, whatever. It's another another cliche thing coming along. But um, I started really thinking about that, and I was like, you know, I think there's probably some value in that, some truth in that. That. Um, you know, whoever you spend the most time with is going to have the most impact and influence over you. And if they're negative people or if they're not necessarily can do kind of people or they're not they're not adventurous or not willing to fail and try, um, you got you got a whole lot of current working against you when you break out and you try to do these things. Right. Because that's where you're getting your feedback. Right. right? And, and, and it's interesting because like a great example in the early 90s. I had an idea. I'm like, we go to the movie theater today, right? And the, the ticket line back in the 90s used to get really long. Right. And I was like, well, how cool would it be? Because we had ATM machines back then. Like, how cool if we had a kiosk that was like an ATM machine where you could come up and you could order your tickets. Yeah. And you could get your cash dispensed for spending money inside. And then you could even work with, like, say, Coca-Cola by running through and you get a dollar off on your soda on the inside to market and brand like, say, Coca-Cola. Right. Right. And that was my idea in the 90s. And of course, I'm running it past these group of five friends. Right. And right. they're like, yeah, whatever. It's never going to happen. Well, you can go to the movie theater today. And yep. apparently it was a good idea. Yeah. I remember <laughs> uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago um, talking to some friends about why isn't there a delivery service for just like pharmaceutical, like pharmacy and and like fast food. Why isn't there? A, why, why can't you call somebody and have uh, restaurant food delivered? It, it makes no sense to me that you, there isn't that thing. And um, similar kind of thing. They were all like, "Yeah, well, I'd, it's probably never going to work. And if it did, it cost you know a billion dollars to start or whatever." And um, before Uber Eats and Grubhub and all that kind of stuff, um, I talked to a guy in a fairly small town who had been doing it for like three years and had like five vehicles going. And uh, uh, it's it just interesting that that um, he took the idea and ran with it. And I, I remember thinking, man, why didn't I, why didn't I take that and run with it? Why did I, why did I just, you know, let that just be pushed aside as it's something that wasn't worth uh, uh, chasing down? But um, you know, again, when you're young, you got a million ideas on things, and and sorting out which one to land on is is kind of one of the tricks too. And that and that's tough, right? Like, where do you start? Where do you do your research? And, and can you, and at the end of the day, right, the, to me now, when I, when I think about doing a business, the first thing I think about is that how are you going to generate your revenue? Right. So before you go anywhere and do anything, if you've got an idea, the first thing to figure out is how do you generate revenue with this business? And will there be enough revenue generated to pay to make the business actually function? And right. that should be most business owners' first thought when they're looking at starting a business, because if you're not going to be able to generate enough revenue then probably not a good idea to start that right. business, right? Right. And if you don't know how to generate the revenue, then then um, it's maybe not well, very well thought out yet, right? Right. And and so I think that, that that right there is a challenge. And that's just something that, you know, you know, over some years now, I finally learned. But that's it's not taught in school. It's not from a book. It's from trial and error. Right. So one of the other things that you kind of use as a mantra, I've heard you say before, is uh, the idea of speaking things into existence. 
and again, this is um, you know it's fairly cliche nowadays, but but I think there is some power to you know putting things out there and kind of self affirmation and things like that. So talk talk to us about what your what your thoughts are on that and how you proceed with this uh, speaking things into existence. See, now I I love that for some reason anything that I can think of that I want. If I have a dream, so here's a great dream that I just recently had. So I I spend my winters and I work up at Stevens Pass and I'm a snowboard instructor. Mm-hmm. And I've been raising my kids on the mountain and they've been since four years old, they've started skiing and, and I really, it's a great family community thing. Now, being able to stay at the mountain instead of driving up and driving down, I really wanted a motorhome. Right. Right. And I'm like, how cool would it be to leave on a Friday afternoon, pick up my kids from school, have some dinner on the way up, they can hang out, get to the mountain, set up by 630 and go do some night skiing, come back in, do movie night and a popcorn. And then when I wake up in the morning, boom, you're there. I'm there. I don't right. have to get up at 430 in the morning to drive to the mountain, right? Because right. that's what we've been doing for the last five years. So, of course, I start telling my friends, like, this is what I want to do. So after last year, a friend of mine had a trailer and we camped in it a couple of times up there and our families had a blast. And I said, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. So I started telling everybody, yeah, we're, this is what we do even though I didn't have it. Right. And then slowly, I just, my wife and I started just looking at motorhomes on Craigslist. And then the next thing you know, we found one we liked, we got it, we've been outfitting it. Then we booked all of our camping spots. And here we are, we're gonna spend the winter from January through April, almost every weekend at the mountain. Right. And that to me is just speaking it into existence. I'll tell people what my dream is. And as you tell people your dream, you're speaking it out loud and you're telling it to another human being. Sure. So you're, you're visually creating it. You're verbally creating it. You're putting something out in the world, even though you haven't even started working on it yet. Right. And then as you tell people, people are listening. And then all of a sudden someone's like, I know someone's selling a motorhome. Oh, I have another friend that does that. Right. Yeah. Starts a dialogue and then people start to talk to you about well, it. Well, and I think the other, the other piece of that is, is through that whole process of, of saying it out loud, um, you're probably you know, 80% of that is probably convincing yourself that this is something you can do. Um, if you, if you have it as an idea that you don't share with anybody, then you're probably not very confident that it can actually happen or, or it should happen. Not, not even that it can happen, but, um, by verbalizing that stuff, you're able to, to speak it and sound like you mean it to somebody else, which is then of course, convincing your self-conscious that, that this is the, what, the direction I want to go. And so therefore you begin doing things that will get you there. You know, if you, if you want to have a house in Maui and, you know, knowing that's going to cost you a million dollars to get a house in Maui, uh, you, you don't just, somebody just, uh, just doesn't sell you a house in Maui for $150,000. That's not how it works. <laughs> That'd be great. Who's you, got that house? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to start putting things in place to be able to afford that house in Maui. And, uh, and you find yourself, you know, moving towards doing things to, to be more successful and generate more income and things like that to hit those goals. If you're, if you're telling people, cause you're, you're going to look pretty foolish talking about having a house in Maui if you're, you know, making $23 an hour and you're 58 years old, <laughs> right? Well, so, you know, and everything you said is, is spot on. And really the, the word is accountability, right? You're right. creating accountability. Right. Because now if you're putting it out there in the world, do you want to look foolish or do you want to go for your dream? And, and then, then you're creating your own accountability to hold yourself accountable to take those first small steps. Right. And it's just one small step. Right. And then the next small step. And it just, and if you do it in small steps, the next thing you know, you just built your dream life. Right. Because I just built, you know, it's funny, Stevens Pass, their mantra, right, is experience of a lifetime. 
they when they have their guests coming to the 37 resorts that Vail Corp owns, their mantra is is that it should be your experience of a lifetime, and that's what I just created. I created an experience of a lifetime of my family living at the mountain almost every weekend in the winter, right. skiing as a family, right? Yeah. And we've got a place to stay, and we're right there. And that, to me, is a dream. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, before we get into some other stuff, um, you used to own a nightclub, and I got a, I got a couple questions for you. When I first started talking about doing a podcast, I first decided I was going to do it. I wanted to talk to somebody who owned a bar First and foremost, <laughs> because there's a couple of things I don't understand about the bar industry. And uh, it's kind of ironic now because I don't even drink anymore. But um, I never understood why you can't get a drink in a bar, <laughs> like, uh, like in a timely manner, like um, if or food or whatever. Um, I remember the last uh, and this has been like been like an ongoing trend. It seems like for like 10 years, you go somewhere on a Friday night and there's 300 people in this place and there's two servers or three servers or whatever. And not that your place was like this, but you're not even in the industry anymore. But I'm curious if there's a reason why that is is designed that way. Or, I mean, these are businesses supposedly set for the purpose of serving these drinks and food to people. And when you go in, there's nobody to be found to do that. You have to sit in the line for an hour and a half to get a drink. You, you order your drink, and then you might as well just get back in the back of the line again, right? So talk to me about that, Paul. What's What's the answer with this? So, uh, great question. Uh, I have a 20-year career. My first part of my career was restaurant hospitality. Um, I started as a dishwasher, and I worked up to owning a 10,000-square-foot nightclub in downtown Seattle. Right. Now, there's, when you talk about the industry, right, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different types or styles of things in the industry. I mean, you're, you could have an, a lounge. Right. You, you could have a corporate bar with dining and a bar, or you could have a sports bar, or you could have a live music venue. You could have a dance club. Right. You could have just a straight up restaurant that's only breakfast. I mean, each each place operates a little different. Um, I'll speak from the nightclub standpoint. Yeah. Okay. On a nightclub standpoint, you know the line outside the door. You know your Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, ten o'clock. Right. Mm-hmm. People perceive value by how many people they see standing in line. There's sure. a value in that, right? Right. So if you have nobody standing in line and you just have a security guard or two security guards standing outside and under a pop-up tent and there's no people there, does it look like it's busy? Right. Although there could be 300 people inside having the time of their life. Yeah. But now if you've got a line of 50 people standing there, right? right and as people are driving, trying to park... They're like, oh, that place is off the hook. We want to go there. Right. So there's a lot of psychology that really goes into the industry, right? It's funny you say that because we, we were, uh, my wife and I were in New York City the Saturday night before um, Halloween last year. And it looked like a complete freak show at Times Square, by the way, because everybody's in their Halloween outfits and things like that. And it was funny. We went, we walked probably, you know, eight, 10 blocks, whatever it is, from one end of Times Square to the other. And, uh, um, Every nightclub had a line of probably 125 people in front of it. And there was, you know, two or three per block. It wasn't like it was one and then another one in four or five blocks. They were all over the place. And, and I remember, uh, you know, it's like 22 degrees outside, and, and many of the people are wearing outfits that are Halloween outfits. So they're, you know, they probably weigh seven and a half ounces each or something like that, and it's colder than crap out. And I remember just thinking, okay, I know I'm old now because there's no way in hell I'm waiting in that line in this in this temperature, especially in clothes like that, trying to get in somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, and, and you're mostly talking to you know, girls in Halloween time. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty scandalous, yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, and, uh, 
and a lot of them will show up without jackets, which is crazy because yes. you got to spend money on coat jackets. Yes, and right? which is a couple of dollars, and and shoes with no covers on the toes. Even nope, <laughs> it had to be freezing. But now, so also with that perception of line, right? There's a way to generate revenue because there's money to be made. Because no, not, not only one, you usually pay a cover charge to get in, right? right? But now, if there's a line of 50 people, do you want to stand outside in that line? No, you just said it. So now is it worth you to walk up to the guy at the front door and say, hey, if I give you $20, will you let me in? Right. And you still pay your cover charge. Right. That's an extra form of revenue for that door guy. And door guys typically like back in the early, you know, back in my time in Seattle, you know, most bars only paid $10 an hour to a door guy. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. So when you're coming down for your Friday and Saturday night, working from 10 to two, you're going to make 40 bucks yeah. to stand outside. Or, or you can make an extra 500 bucks cash on the side. Right. So the door job position is a very coveted gig because they can make two, three, four hundred bucks just by managing that line. Now, <laughs> those 125 people that are standing out on the curb, there may not be anybody in the nightclub. Yeah. And after you get done spending 30, 40 minutes waiting in line and you know there's a bunch of people and you get inside and there's nobody there, are you going to leave? No, no. you're going to get a drink and wait. Yeah, of course. Right? So now you're committed because you had to wait. Right. So there's a commitment level that occurs with that as well, right? Right. So there's, there's a lot of psychology that goes into how you operate and manage a, a nightclub venue. Right. Right? That's funny. Well, the places I was going to probably weren't considered nightclubs. They were probably closer to sports bars or dive bars. But um, I remember just multiple times sitting around looking at, uh, at a, a crowded bar on, you know, let's say, a Sunday evening or a Sunday afternoon for football games or a Friday or Saturday night. And I remember there's a, a couple places that we, we used to go um, – that would just be crowded. I mean, there had to be 200, easily 200 people in there, and there'd be two servers or three. And I remember just doing the math going, okay, if there's 200, 250 people, and if you, for each one server you brought on, you'd have, to, you'd have to sell two meals probably or four drinks per hour to break even on the wages because the customer pays the bulk of the wages in tips. Why aren't they doing that? Is it a, li is it a liability thing where they're afraid of over-serving? Is it... Uh, just laziness <laughs> because I kind of feel like that, you know, bars are like the, the one industry where it's pretty easy to identify what your customer wants, right? If it's a sports bar, they want to come watch baseball and football and hockey and whatever else and get a drink and get some food and things like that. Um, it just seemed like, okay, here, here's an industry where you know exactly what everybody wants, but you're not providing it, <laughs> but people still come. I don't get it. So I was trying to figure out what I was missing there, but well, it's a good, you know, it's a great question, Brian. Um, you know, there are, when you take a bar like that, so I worked in one of those. I worked in a little sports bar like that. And so, like, on a Friday, Saturday night, we would do a prime rib dinner, yep. right? So we're going to get a – we would get a dinner crowd. Then we would do live music, right? So starting around 9, 10 o'clock, so we would get a, a party crowd to come in, right? And then you kind of get your late night, you know, guys that are coming in. And so – people get spread out over time. I guess the short way to answer that question is, is that you're back to labor. And now today in Seattle, we've, we've raised labor to $15 yeah. an hour right. and labor's a real cost. And yeah. so when you're a bar or a restaurant and you don't have, you don't know when people are showing up. I mean, obviously if the Seahawks are playing in the Super Bowl, yeah, yeah you're going to staff up, you're sure. going to have some extra people. You're doing New Year's Eve or a Halloween event. Yep. You're going to staff up. If you know that your Friday and Saturday nights or a certain night of the week is going to be busy, you staff up accordingly. Right. Right. But for most businesses, you're trying to manage your labor cost. And then at the same time, because before the $15 an hour, Servers primarily only make their money on tips. Right. So if you put too many servers on the floor, there's not enough money for them to earn, which then doesn't make it worth their while to work there. Gotcha. So, so, so you're balancing their earning ability 
and uh, and you're trying to forecast a customer demand, and that's not always as easy as it looks. It's it's. A, I guess it makes sense if I if I roll in and it happens to be a a Friday and they're unusually busy at seven thirty or whatever, and their staff wasn't coming in until eleven or ten or something like that. I guess, I guess that makes sense, and that's not really what this this uh, podcast is about. I just I, I knew you were coming in, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna finally get to ask my question about. Why the hell you can't get a drink on time in a bar? Yeah, labor, <laughs> and and uh, marketing. It sounds like uh, we're we're keeping people at the door, right? That's yeah. the <laughs> so in in a in a number of years in a number of different industries. What are some of the things you look back and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done this, or I I really wish I would have learned this particular lesson faster in life. What, what do you look back on and and uh, and what's what's sta- what stands out for you? Um, you know, each business is a little different. Um, if, since we're talking about the nightclub at the moment, I can tell you that probably that, well, I got a lot of, I got a lot of learning lessons. Yeah. Let's start with, uh, so location, 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 right. Um, the three most important things in retail. That's right. Location, location, location. So in my case, I was in Pioneer square, which was a nightclub hub. Yep. However, my, my space was the first level of underground Seattle. So instead of having an actual storefront building you could look at, all I had was a doorway with a set of stairs going down. Yeah. So visually, having something that was eye-peeling and catching and engaging, I didn't have that. You couldn't see anything. You had no idea what we looked like. We were just a door with a sign right. with staircase going down to 10,000 square feet. Right. You had no idea what was down there. Yeah. And you know, I think where that's applicable nowadays, not, not everybody listening is going to have a, a nightclub, of course, but... Um, I see a number of businesses opening up with peculiar names that have no bearing on what their industry is. Um, and of course, you know, Amazon's the, the one example you can point out and say, well, that, you don't, would know that they sold books or they sell online stuff, but they've built a huge brand. They've invested billions of dollars doing that. Um, and it seems like new names are, are now trendy if they start with a Z or a Q or an X or something like that. And um, they, they have no, you have, you, you, when you say the name of the business, you know, you have no idea what they do. And I think for most people who are listening to this, small business owners, um, just being candid and saying, here's what we do should be paramount in, in naming your brand or picking your DBA or whatever. Right. Yep. And you know, it's funny if you want to correlate that to like, so my company complete merchant services, right. Right. It says what it is in the name. Yeah. Then you take square. Yeah. Right. Like what's square. <laughs> So without what you're saying, without creating that brand, that recognition and that messaging, right? And the way that you tell that story, how does the consumer know? And then the amount of money that it takes to right. create that in the marketplace, right. which is now a household name. Yeah, Square is now a great example. But, but, but if, I mean, if you were able to go back in time and count the, every dollar they put in, in you know, TV, radio, billboards, whatever it took in, in just getting that out there, Facebook ads and Google ads and things like that, uh, they they've got to be in the tens of billions of dollars in in, in getting that to, to get that place where now it's just out there common knowledge everybody knows what square means now. Yep. But if you don't have that budget, how do you do it? If you're a small person, <laughs> right. if you're a small business, you probably don't have the budget to do that. Right. Um, you also mentioned uh, in the, some stuff we talked about beforehand, uh, being a little more flexible. You've come you've come to understand that being a little more flexible is is better than a my way or a highway approach. Yeah, you know the the nightclub when I when I started that door, you know that's a it's a hundred thousand dollar a month operation with ten thousand square feet. So my nuts a hundred grand, and and when I went in, I had a vision of how I was going to be an owner and run my club and create my environment. Right. And, you know, in that kind of an environment, it's a it's a massive marketing business is really what a nightclub is. Mm-hmm. Um, the the bulk of the money we'd spend six to ten thousand dollars a week in marketing, right? And. So you have a lot of partnerships with people. So we worked with outside promoters and all that kind of stuff. And, 
and all of them have a different idea how they want to market and promote as well. And so they're, when it comes to working with those people, you have to have some give and take and some flexibility if you're going to be successful working together. Right. And that was definitely where, when I was younger in that experience, I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to do it my way. I don't care what you think. Yeah. And, and you know, and over time, I learned to adjust, you know, through my mistakes, right? Right. And, and that's a valuable lesson to learn. Yeah, well, and we talked about a little bit about this last week. We were talking about culture. Um, you know, when you have the my way or the highway mentality, um, you're teaching your folks not to bring you any ideas. And if they don't bring you any ideas, um, all you have is your own ideas. And, you know, I hate to burst everybody's bubble, but you're not the smartest person walking around necessarily. <laughs> and you don't necessarily have all the answers. Um, you know, you're going to be much more, much, much more successful over the long term if you have a team of folks who are comfortable, willing, and able to bring ideas. And if you're just walking around with an iron fist mandating things, I mean, you're going to be in, you're going to be in one place at a time. And, you know, you walk in, you start demanding things or, or, or telling folks exactly how to do things, and you walk away. Well, guess what happens when you walk away? <laughs> yeah. You're left with yourself. Right. Right. And, and, and they're going to go back to doing what they wanted. That's right. And then and you bring up a really valid point because everything you said there is correct, right? And then a lot of small business owners, including myself, then you're there by yourself. Yeah. And now, now that you feel like there's this separation between you and them, because yeah. you know, you're the owner, you're the person that makes the decision, then you start going, okay, well, what is the right decision? And what do I do? Right. And, and, and the amount of stress that it creates, because now you don't have a place to get feedback and right. feedback's really important, really being right. a small business and, owner. And, and in those situations, you're going to find yourself a number of times not knowing what to do. And if, but if your way, if your approach is the my way or the highway thing, you can't very well let people know that you don't know what you're doing because then you can't be the my way or the highway guy. That's correct. And so the more you uh, ostracize yourself in the group and trying to get ideas on how to fix problems, uh, the more isolated you become, the less confident you are in your decisions and probably the more rash you are and more, harsh you are with your delivery and things like that. And it's just like this snowball effect that's created. And, and, uh, next thing you know, it's just completely out of whack and you have no idea why. <laughs> well, and, and you know, it's funny cause you and I were slightly talking about the fact of just like, you know, the, the feedback is such a, a critical thing when you're running a business is, you know, when you're trying to make decisions, having a good place or a sounding board, whether you have a mentor or a relationship with another business owner, someone that understands the thinking and the processes that you're going to right. and being able to share your ideas and be able to get feedback because that helps so much. I mean, if you're talking to people that have not been in that business ownership experience where the responsibility is real, right? right. And, and there is consequences to your action and, and they affect more than just yourself. They affect all your employees and their families, right? Right. And so, you know, having that source to get good feedback so you can continue to develop and have people to work with to help you grow your business is really a, a key foundational thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how folks do it um, any other way. Um, <clears throat> certainly not successful folks. I mean, how, I don't know how you would get through the stress and, and the anxiety and the wonder and the, the, the fear and all that stuff without having, uh, if not a mentor, at least somebody you can trust just to vent to. <laughs> just, right. And, and just call and complain. <laughs> well, and there you go. And this is why so many small businesses fail, right? Like our, our track record is tough because we are, as, as individuals, we're trying to take on something that we're not educated or trained in and don't right. have and probably didn't have a lot of resources to begin with. Right. Um, we, we talked a little bit about like Square and Amazon and the marketing costs that go along with that. You, you mentioned also that uh, don't, don't be cheap when it comes to marketing your brand. What do, what do you mean by that? What, how do you quantify what cheap is when you're doing that? Cheap, not in the financial sense, but 
Um, definitely one of the things, uh, definitely a mistake that I made with the nightclub is that we started with a brand and we did it so fast, right? Instead of being thoughtful about it, that by the time that we created that brand, opened the doors and that the brand and the messaging that we really wanted wasn't correct, that we had to turn around and go try and change the brand within less than five months. Right. And so, you know, then all of a sudden now we look like we have a brand identity issue. Yeah. We don't look strong. We don't look confident in the marketplace. And that did have an effect on our business for real. Right. Right. And so, and then it took us about a year and a half to overcome that from what we did by not starting off going, what is going to be our brand? What is the image? What is the story? What is the message? And what are we about? Right. You know, and really having a foundation of what it is that we're trying to put out there in the world and, and, you know, and, and the experience we're trying to give people and, and we misstepped there for sure. Yeah. You know, so what, that, what do you think it cost you? Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> well, you know, what did it cost me? I mean, financially, yeah, it cost us a lot of money. Could yeah. I, could I say, could I, could I attach a dollar amount? Could it be 500,000? Could it be a million dollars? Yeah, it sure could be. But could it be the frustration and the hours that I spent trying to undo it and fix it? Could it be the, the, the tens of thousands of dollars, if not a hundred thousand dollars of trying to rebrand and relaunch and remarket? Right. Right. And the reason I put you on the spot and asked you is because, you know, I want, I want folks to understand the, the, the gravity of that. It's, uh, it's not just a, oh, well, you know, if you make a mistake, you just do it over again. It's, it, you certainly can, uh, but it's going to cost. And if you got the, if you got deep enough to pockets to, to pay for it, then, you know, go ahead. But if you don't, you, be, you better get it right the first time and you better do the research. You better um, call in some prof professionals if you need to. Uh, this is one of those things to, to wag. <laughs> Right, because at the end of the day, your brand's your biggest thing. I mean, even, even as us as human beings today, now, now that the world of business and work has changed, you know, even employees at a company with our social media experience, we are our own brand. When you go on and look at my Facebook page or my, you know, MySpace or my LinkedIn, right? right? I have a brand, just like every other human being has a brand. And so now we spend a lot of time focusing on our own brand to build who we are, and then we build our own tools and a lot of times we have to, you know, companies now hire us based on who are, who we are as a branded individual, the things we do and the tools that we can bring to them. Right. So the work world's a completely different place. So just as important as a personal brand is, it's even more important for your business. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, so let's talk a little bit about merchant services. So um, this is one of those things that is kind of always a minor thorn in, in your side as a business owner. You kind of, at least for me and people I've talked to, it kind of always feels like we're getting we're getting uh, taken advantage of, but we don't know how. <laughs> it just and, and, and it's not that that's based on any facts. It's just it just feels that way because we don't understand it mostly. Uh, and when when people merchant service providers come and say, "Hey, you should switch to us from where you're going. I know I can save you a ton of money." They show you their their sheet. You know, hey, well, I'll take a look at what you're doing now, and I'll compare it side by side. And they're speaking two different languages when they're doing that. You know, the, the the current provider is written in French and the new one is written in Chinese and I don't understand either one. So how do I make a decision? It always comes down to just trusting the person you're talking to. And um, it's it's just it's just a hard thing to navigate because you, you don't understand it. And it's not like they say, here's how a here's how a merchant service statement supposed to look. And everybody follows that. They all have different um, methods of, of, you know, showing their strengths and and exposing quote-unquote exposing other people's weaknesses what are we supposed to do <laughs> you 
You know, Brian, it's a phenomenal question, right? Because this is a, this is a challenge part. There, there is not a lot of transparency in our industry, right? And it, and it's a very complicated industry, really, to be honest with you. And and it's a very important industry because at the end of the day, now, I mean, the bulk of businesses, seventy to eighty percent of their transactions or sales is all through credit card processing. That's right. where their money is coming from, and um, sometimes we forget that. I think as owners as well, right? Um, to go back and talk about um, some of why the industry is so complicated, just think in Visa and MasterCard, just in those two, like separate Discover and American Express, mm-hmm. there's over 1,200 different credit cards that are issued by these different banks. So like, for example, my favorite credit card is the Alaska Airlines mileage card, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of 1,200. And each one of these individual credit cards has a different cost. And the reason why it has a different cost, which is called interchange, is because that the card issuing bank, so Alaska Airlines card, for example, it's issued by Bank of America, mm-hmm. okay? And then it's sponsored by Alaska Airlines. So when you earn your miles or points, right, when you spend your money, your points go to Alaska Airlines and the money is done and held through Bank of America. Right. Now, what one of the things I love about this card, just on a side note, is that if Bank of America takes your credit card away, Alaska Airlines still keeps all your points. That's why it's so awesome, gotcha. right? Okay. Where if you have an American Express card and you they take it away, you lose all those points you built. Okay. So there's different programs. Right. But in order for those points, those rewards that we get as consumers, that comes from the merchants. That comes from the business owners. So when I swipe that, when that, when that Alaska Airlines card gets swiped, the interchange cost on that card, what Bank of America earns is 1.9%. Right. That's what they get. And then... You have a discount rate, right? That the provider, like say me or any other um, merchant provider, that they earn for helping you to put your business together and do the transaction, right? Right. And so the bulk of the money in processing really goes to the card issuing banks, right? But not understanding that, how do we know? We think it's all going to some merchant service guy, and there's a ton of money out there that's getting wasted, and 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 it's hard to not know if someone doesn't explain. So what it. you're saying is when when somebody brings a statement and says, here, we can save you a ton of money. It's hard to do it because the Alaska mileage card costs, I don't know, three times what a debit card costs or five times what a debit card costs. And so you just have a random pool of, of cards that are run each month. And so you're saying it's just, it's just not, we're not able to really dice that down and see, well, here's what it would cost on our plan. If you can go back and find the 642 cards you ran that month, we could look at them side by side. It can't really do that, right? So, so it's interesting. It depends on the provider. So that's a great question you bring up. So when you, when you're on an FDIC insured provider, so I'm, I'm, I work directly, like we're direct with first data. First data Mm. is the largest credit card processor in the globe. And so when you get a statement from first data, it will break down how much you did with say each with a visa credit card, with a visa debit card, with a mastercard credit card, a mastercard debit card, right down the list. And then it even goes more in depth where it'll break down each different reward type card. Now, none of us can read it. I mean, I even struggle to read it. Half right. the time I have to have my chief information officer do the review because he's been reviewing statements for 20 years, right? right. Um, and then reverse engineer some of the math because it's complicated. Um, but when you go to like, say, if you're using a Square, Stripe, or a PayPal, they give you just a flat rate. Right. And it just says, okay, you processed $1,000 and it cost you 30 bucks, right? Right. Because it was 3%. Where... Um, the difference between a debit card and a credit card is very significant. Sure. Right? A debit card can, should be costing you less than a half a percent to process 
but yet Square, Stripe, and PayPal charge you three percent. Right. So we're not going to be able to in in a in a short podcast like this. We're not going to be able to explain folks how to do this thing. Um, I think one thing that's is key for folks to to remember when they're you know, even people who are not business owners and they and they really enjoy their mileage cards and things like that is understand the consumer or the 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 service provider or the person the company selling the product pays for that. So if you have just a regular Visa debit card that costs next to nothing in the merchant services world because the money is just being taken out of a checking account and dumped into the merchant account, right? That's correct. It's like cash or check. The the Visa credit card costs more because Visa's floating that money until they get reimbursed. So they're they're charging a fee for that to the merchant. And if the consumer doesn't pay it right away, they're charging a fee to, for them to, to hold the note, basically, right? Yep. Um, and then when you add on all the reward stuff on top of that, so instead of Visa or whatever taking 1.9%, Bank of America or whoever taking the 1.9% just to float the money for 30 days until they get paid, hopefully, now they're floating that money plus whatever the cost of the points are. So uh, there is a dollar-for-dollar dollar correlation to every Alaska miles that you earn has a cost to it of, you know, 0.4 cents or whatever. I don't, I don't know what it comes out to. Um, but, either, that, but, yes. but that fee is tacked on to what the service provider or merchant pays. That's right. Um, so for folks listening, again, who, who who have all these great points plans, they wonder, well, why will people start jacking my price? Why are they charging me now to take MasterCard? Uh, this is why. Uh, you can have all those wonderful benefits and, and points accumulations things, but they're not free. And in a world where price is everything, if I can advertise a service or, or a product for nine ninety nine, and then and then say when you want to pay with a MasterCard, say, well, I'm going to charge you three percent for that. That's a whole lot more attractive as a as a company selling something than I'm going to charge ten dollars and forty eight cents for this thing instead of nine ninety nine, because we're we're training our 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 retailers and our service providers to be price conscious because we're all going to Amazon and shopping for things. <laughs> And, and that's a real challenge. Right, right, right. So if, if we can't figure this out over over a, a short podcast like this, what to do? What what do people do if they're not really sure? How do they get a hold of you? What what's the process if they're not really sure if they're paying a fair price or not? Because there there is there is there are companies you know like any industry. There's companies who charge a fair price and they're very upfront and here's our pricing. And there's company who companies that that um, notice that people are confused and it's it's really this nebulous cloud of data that's thrown out there and they might charge a hundred percent more and who would even know right yep that's it and then you know and, and then the merchant industry is it's it's challenging in many ways because there's lots of different types of businesses and so there's different types of merchant accounts because you, you take a business like say your own brian where your your average ticket is probably somewhere like around five to seven hundred bucks per yep. transaction that mm -hmm. you do because plumbing industry is usually a pretty expensive industry right but then you turn around and you go to like a Starbucks where the average ticket is $5. Right. And it costs more for merchant services for Starbucks than it does for you because they're getting charged on every single transaction where they may be doing, you know, one Starbucks store could be doing, you know, a thousand transactions in a day. Right. Right. <laughs> Depending on how busy they are. And then right. you take that times the franchise times 30 days a month. I mean, it's a very big number. Right. Where you might only do a hundred transactions for a month and do similar money. Right. Um, so there's effects that happen based on the business, which is where sitting down with somebody and going, okay, here's my business and understanding you know, where my costs are at. So a good, I, I guess a good thing for listeners that are listening, if you're a business and your average ticket is $20 or greater, 
you know, then your, your cost for a debit transaction should be less than a half a percent. When you are taking a credit card and you have a $20 average ticket or more, and you're selling it where the card is swiped in your store, mm-hmm. you're going to end up somewhere close to about 2%, give or take. It could be down to 1.7%. It could be up to 2.2. It's, again, how many transactions, right. how much credit versus debit right. are you doing? And, and so there's a lot of factors when we try to help um, business owners, right? When you're taking a credit card over the phone or online, there's an extra fee when you type the number into the merchant, right? And the banks bump that up, so that cost goes up as well. Does that help? Yes. So, but at the end of the day, if they're not sure, they should reach out to you. How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so you can reach me. My uh, my direct number is 206-200-4054. If I don't answer, leave a message. I'm usually in meetings. Or you can go directly to my website, which is www.completemerchantservices, with an S.com. Or you can email me directly at uh, pauladane at completemerchantservices.com. Perfect. And uh, I hope everybody got that through my coughing. Why don't you get the phone number one more time? Yeah, 206-200-4054. And the phone's usually the best way. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, and wh- and we're, what, what kind of area do you cover? You're, you're nationwide, right? We're, we're nationwide. We're in all 50 states, but I'm located here in uh, Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Tacoma area. Right. Okay. Um, quickly, let's talk about the craft foods. So it's a cheese and uh, salmon, right? Cheese and salmon mostly? It's a dream. We're back to dreams, Brian. Nice. <laughs> So, uh, so my other family business is that my cousin makes uh, a yummy hot smoked cheese and a hot smoked salmon. Um, normally out in the world, when you get a smoked cheese at the grocery store, they use cold air to, um, to smoke the cheese. So right. it only permeates the outside. Um, our founder, which he's 78 years old, Steve, at 19 years old, he started hot smoking using heat with uh, hot smoking fish. So we've taken that same process where we hot smoke our cheese and our salmon and we physically melt the cheese, which turns it into a really cumber, kind of a creamy, buttery, smooth texture. Yep. We have a, uh, our cheese is made out of a dairy in Wisconsin and we have a jalapeno, a cheddar and a Wisconsin white. Um, our salmon uh, comes out of the water fresh without even a flash freeze. It's never been frozen. So it's a very soft, moist fish. And then we again use our, our hot smoking process a lot of people use a wet brine. We use a dry rub, nice. uh, and it creates so it's a not a salty type flavor. And if you're uh, listening and you're looking for a gift for somebody, you're not really sure what to get him. I can tell you this stuff is awesome. He, he's had these samples sitting on our table here for uh, 50 minutes now, and and um, my stomach's been growling the whole time. Uh, I've bought this stuff before. It's really good. How, how do folks find it? Uh, folks love it. How, uh, do, how do they find it? How do they find it? Uh, it, The easiest way to find it is to go to our website, which again is uh, craft, C-R-A-F-T, goods.com, or sorry, .net. (laughs) Craftfoods.net. Craft goods. Craft goods. Gotcha. Craftgoods.net. Yep. Perfect. Um, and like I said, I've had it. It's really good. Um, it's, uh, it's all, everything I've had has been really good. The, I think the jalapeno is probably my favorite, but I like spicy stuff. Uh, the fish was fantastic. Um, Paul, thanks for coming a lot. Thanks a lot for coming in today. I really appreciate having you. Oh, thank you, Brian. Um, it's been great to be here with you. And uh, again, for I, I skipped in the beginning, but you guys can reach me at Brian L. Harding or Brian at BrianLHarding.com or uh, GrowingYourSuccessfulBusiness.com. And uh, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to have on Brandon Christian with uh, College Hunks Moving. And uh, that'll be fun. We'll talk to him about his journey so far. And uh, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Paul for coming in. And you guys all have a great week and talk to you next week.